Hi, this is Hillary. Welcome to Index for Continuance, a podcast of the CSU Poetry Center. I'm here with Zach. Hi. And this is a little introduction to our interview with Jonica Stuckey and Carrie Olivia Adams of Black Ocean. Um, we have an awesome chat with them coming in a minute. We have just like a few terms we thought could be useful to chat about in advance. Um, one of which I feel like just like dumping a whole bunch of like information and opinions <laughs> about sales and publishing just putting them out there, uh, which is that we talk with um, Jonica and Carrie a little bit about like um, print runs and, and sales figures. Uh, obviously, the, maybe the meanings of those terms are more readily apparent, but just a little kind of like background on how we think about them as publishers and also just like what kinds of sales figures are happening in small press publishing right now. Um, yeah. So maybe the first thing to say is just like a lot of small press books that you know and love, that you were taught as a student, that you teach that you heard an awesome reading from, they are selling between like about 250, 500 copies. And that's very normal right now. Um, like used, in a, like in a year. Yeah. Or yeah, in or their in, life. In their, time. in the life of their print run. In their whole or, life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Till the day they die. Birth to death. <laughs> yeah. Cool. You do have on your royalty statements, you have, you know, um, year to date sales and then lifetime to date. So it is a lifetime. So a lot of small press books, they don't break that 500 copy threshold in their lifetime sales. And it used to be everything was a little bit, just like a little bit higher. Um, but for mm -hmm. all of the reasons that we've been talking about on this podcast, uh, small press and I imagine also indie publisher sales have gotten compressed and kind of pushed even farther to the margins and gotten slimmer. Mm -hmm. um, oh, no. I thought we banned the words. Well, we banned slim volume, but oh, maybe not uh, conceptually. Yeah, it's slim volume that we are uh, against. I'd like to ban it from everything, including what I just said. But slimmer? I, okay. Slimmer. Um, I think it's useful to know that. I think a lot of people who send their work to small presses or who read small press books may not realize that the sales figures are as low as that. Um, so that's yeah. just a good context to have. Um, but one of my beautiful friends in publishing... Um, Pam Thompson reminded me when we were talking about this, you know, not, not long ago that like, oh, well, 500 copies is a lot if you are hand selling every copy, yeah. which is kind of the way a lot of those sales work. So, you know, just to put, sort of put that in context that if a, if a smaller press book is selling 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 copies, that's a, that's a big, that's a success. That's a lot. That's well above average. Um, but also that in publishing in general, sales figures are lower than you might think, right? Yeah. Uh, it used to be like a truism that about 95% of books published in the U.S. did not sell more than 5,000 copies. So a lot of the books published by big publishers, they're not selling a lot. Um, they are making their money on a small percentage of their books. Are, are the blockbusters are the, are the ones are in the, the books on their backlist that really carry them. And when Penguin Random House went up against the, Depart the Department of Justice, that sounded fake, but that's what they're called. <laughs> Um, oh, I love and this head-to-head -head <laughs> that they were in recently about their attempt to buy um, Simon & Schuster, which we've touched on, um, a yeah. lot of interesting information came out there, which was about kind of what uh, <laughs> surprisingly high percentage of their books they lose money on. So just to say sales figures are lower and rangier than you might think, um, and they're getting more unequal, right? We are increasingly, and we can talk about this maybe on, a, on another episode, we're in the era of the blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So you have very few books selling at very, very, very high volume through the sales channels that are available to the big five. Um, and then most other books actually are, are not selling that much. Okay. Yeah. 
even at even at those like what one would think of as the the highest levels of American publishing. Yes. There's yeah, yeah. Still, most most books are actually not selling all that many copies. I'm guessing you have some books that do get a nice come out from a bigger press, get a nice award, maybe get a lovely like Times review, and actually still are not selling that much. Like I would yeah. not like hard hard to surprise an old battle axe like me (laughs) (laughs) so jonica mentioned some uh the question is there are print runs and when you and i think he'll kind of get into it more but just to say the sort of math of print runs like a lot of the the profit question the the make or break question for a press is how many copies to print because you have Mm -hmm. to you have to pay that up front um, and then wait to see if you get the money back from sales. And also when do you reprint? And some small presses handle this by only having limited runs. So they will put a book out and it might even say in the book, you know, copy like 47 of a thousand or something like that. And when they get to a thousand, they no longer print that book. So that's how they've addressed the thorny um, question of reprints um, because for all of us, we want to keep our books in print and we want to keep selling books if people are going to keep buying them, but it is expensive to do a reprint and you have to figure out how many copies to do (laughs) so that you're not stuck with like a thousand extra copies because you overestimated how long, how, how well it was going or like how long the interest in the book would last. Or you can kind of mess it up a little the other way, which is that you do a small print run you know, reprint where you're paying a higher, um, per unit cost. Like if you're only printing 500 copies and then you, you go through those really quick yeah. and then you have to do another one where it's like, you would have paid a much lower per unit cost if you had done a larger print run initially. So, um, they're going to talk about some of those things at black ocean. If you love, um, that kind of detail, <laughs> first of all, you probably enjoyed what we just said. <laughs> I, I enjoyed, I didn't say much, I, but I enjoyed, uh, listening and, and thinking about, what was said this is the kind of background information we like to share and get into and they'll get they're going to get into a whole range of things that are also like beautifully creative conceptual all the sides of it but also that kind of nitty-gritty and i'll just add from because we talk about the last like 20 years in publishing that this question of print runs and sales were real big with the chain stores because they would often Mm -hmm. order a whole big chunk of your print run and then they'd sit on it and they might return it um, they, and they, they had like borders and I think Barnes and Noble too, but definitely borders had six months to pay. So they could take, you know, a big old chunk of your print run, sit on it for five and a half months, send it back. Mm-hmm. And they never paid for that. But you maybe had to pay to reprint the book in the meantime, if it was doing well. So in that six month window, you could go from a successful book to actually losing money because if they ordered a whole bunch of it, but they didn't sell that much of it but it was selling enough that you had to reprint off of your initially small print run and then a whole bunch of copies come back to you, you've lost some money. So this was a kind of problem that we had with the chain stores, um, particularly with they they had a six-month window to pay and they returned a whole, whole, whole bunch of stuff. Right, which was just like a one of their like conditions of mm-hmm. sucking your books, right? Like that was just yeah, part of the terms. Yeah, you couldn't get out of it. And <clears throat> that was one reason when Amazon began their rise you know, there was a little bit of enthusiasm for Amazon based on Amazon didn't return that much stock and returns yeah. were real brutal mm-hmm. for small and indie presses because of the kind of problem we were just discussing, which is that they would kind of suck up a bunch of your stock, mm-hmm. sit on it, 
pay belatedly or often return and not pay at all. And sometimes they return a bunch of stock and then reorder the same titles. So they're sitting on their, your books are on their shelves, but they're never paying for it. So <laughs> these are, <laughs> these are some of the, um, shenanigans, <laughs> absolute shenanigans out there. Yeah. At, you know, that, that we all endured, <laughs> uh, and that kind of shaped the current sales landscape. Um, totally. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> end I think, my story hour. <laughs> yeah, but we gotta come back to it. You know what I mean? This is such a, this is like such a weird. It's like distribution. You know, all these little like little like functional logistical ghosts that like mm-hmm. hang over this mm-hmm. practice are actually like. Um, there's a reason why they haven't been exercised. Yeah, so. it's also weird that you can return books. And that, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not going to look this up. I'm just going to speak from my gut, which yep. is I think it, I think that policy arose in the 90s. It's sort of like little stimulant to the book market in a time of some depression or whatever. Was like, And it, usually like stores can't just return stock that they have. They are responsible for paying for their stock right. and selling it. Like you can't return like Raisin Bran. Like, right. Because why would you stock it if you couldn't sell it? Although, you know, it's actually like, it almost makes more sense with Raisin Bran because like Raisin Bran can expire. Mm-hmm. As we have seen, books are yeah. tenacious little guys. Can Raisin Bran expire? That's a good Well, all right. Well, theoretically, <laughs> yeah. it's got an expiration date. Maybe we need to start putting expiration dates. Yeah. And so books. there's, you'll see some smaller presses and any presses really fight back against returning and say that yeah. they're non-returnable or that they can only be returned if it's for an event or things like that. And mm-hmm. and in part, that's because we, we lose a lot of money on returns and what's more, we lose the stock and then we don't have the stock and, mm-hmm. and that can create an issue if the stock is out in the world, but it's not going to sell and you're not going to get paid on it, yeah. but it's going to come back to you. So that issue of like the returnability of books as a, from the point of sale as a product is one that puts a lot of pressure on publishers, particularly smaller publishers, because all pressure is bigger on them because they're smaller. And we see it, you know, we see it kind of like play out in different in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Now Zach has a more like. <laughs> Interesting conceptual term. No, I don't know if it's more. I don't know. I oh, think it's. Oh, we broke the alphabet rule. We're going backward in the alphabet today. Oh, uh, whatever. You know what? <clears throat> Episode ten. This is where the wheels come off. Things are changing. The gloves come off, and we're just we're just running down the road with no shoes on. Um. Yeah. The well, the term I wanted to bring to the audio table was <laughs> that. Uh, I think it's one that uh, Janaki uses that I, I feel really interested in, uh, which is mission-driven. Um, and this comes up when we're talking about Black Ocean's decision to remain a for-profit, um, just like a for-profit enterprise. Um, and we do talk about nonprofit. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that um, both Janaki and Carrie have uh, great, I think, like illuminating perspectives on you know, the pros and cons of, uh, nonprofit status, uh, which is obviously, I think probably, you know, in response to a lot of the complications you were just raising Hillary, one reason why a press would want to be a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. right. Was, is to sort of insulate in a way against like some of those, um, like market forces. Right. Um, but also to sort of gain, as we sort of talk about with Janica and carry some, you know, purchase into, just like 
what nonprofit status enables an organization to do, um, you know, like culturally and like from a fundraising perspective. Um, that's all really interesting. I feel fascinated by that, but I love the way that they use the term mission driven to talk about the kind of for-profit enterprise that they are, um, which is, you know, uh, like quite entrepreneurial, quite scrappy. You know, they use, they use the terms, uh, indie hustle, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, in an era when like, you know, hustle can be a word that has like connotations and in and of itself, like I bristle at it, but also like, that's a quality that I like really respect in a lot of like the indie presses and even just like smaller, um, you know, whether they be like artists or like record labels or whatever, all of these like cultural institutions that I really love, um, that scrappiness I think is something that is like, you know, whether you want it to be or not, uh, regardless of your relationship to labor, it is kind of like a condition of like working in the small press world or any kind of independent like arts and cultural sort of enterprise. Um, but they talk about being mission driven, um, as a way of basically putting a finer point on, on for-profit, uh, that, you know, basically I, I think helpfully disambiguates, you know, like we hear not for profit or nonprofit and that means one thing to us. Um, we hear for profit and that might have certain connotations, um, as though the only op, you know, the only objective is to make money or something. Um, but to be a, a, a mission driven, uh, for profit enterprise, you know, I think just speaks to that kind of like, you can say indie hustle or just sort of, you know, maybe more widely like, entrepreneurial spirit of black ocean as a press that like is you know they obviously want their books to sell well they make decisions that ensure that um to the best of their ability their books are going to perform going to like you know make some money as they can to the extent they can which may not be much as we just glossed um they put that effort uh into that and like that's part of the equation but also you know they have a mission that they, you know, the way they phrase it, that they, you know, kind of position as it's like their guiding star, right? And the the main sort of like values of the press, like, are not to necessarily like make as much money as possible. Um, and I think one thing we get into this with them, but like this, I think is um, it's just kind of a more nuanced way of thinking about like nonprofit versus for-profit, right? Like there are kind of these in-between approaches that um, can be really like beneficial and advantageous, right? Because um, that enables them to do certain things that a nonprofit probably couldn't. Um, And as a for-profit enterprise, like they actually, you know, I think because they have just like such a mix of books, right? And as we talk about, um, some of them sell a ton, some of them like don't and I think they kind of know that going in but like having that blend you know kind of enables them to give you know to like to make both kinds of book you know and just like make the kinds of books they want to make knowing that like some are going to sell more and maybe um you know kind of serve more of that like backlist function and others are going to be like a little quieter but those are books that they love and want to you know see in the world anyway. Um, so I don't know, for me, it was just like pretty illuminating to, um, you know, a word like mission or a phrase like mission driven, like, 
I don't know. It sounds like something you'd hear come up in like like a panel talk or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, I mean, both of them are just so like smart and um, I, importantly, just like clear about this. And I just have. I mean, I guess you would after running a press for eighteen years, but they just have a very clear um, vision for it that uh, I found really just like illuminating talking to them. Yeah, and maybe a common theme. Um, in our episodes this month, you know, our other episode is the interview um, with Joelle and Johannes of Action Books is, you know, in this podcast, we end up talking a lot about specificity or like calls into specificity. Um, yeah. And in the mission statements, the writing on the, those each of these presses websites, it's not interchangeable with other, pre- you know, like yeah. <laughs> it's really specific and theirs and beautiful and like says something about who is there and is like <laughs> idiosyncratic and charged and like alive. Like it's mm-hmm. not a generic, like a mission statement we think of as a pretty generic genre, <laughs> like mm-hmm. one that is meant to be legible to whoever funders like, and like inoffensive and sort of bland. Yeah. Um, but in fact, your mission statement can reflect your, this like the specificity of how your press works together and how people approach their work and what they're trying to do. And I think it's like, it's some real writing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so yeah. 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 And, um, not just saying that like we, I mean, we, we address this in the, the action episode, but you know, Johannes mentions like the best, mm-hmm. the, the finest, you know? Yeah. Yeah. However, how many places say they publish the finest? Right. As like, yeah. A, that's not possible. <laughs> and be like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, like what? That can't mean the same thing to everybody. That's crazy. All right. Well, this is another really beautiful conversation. It's so, so good. I felt, I felt so good after talking to them. Just like not even like I'm not saying like about my life or something. Just like emotionally, <laughs> like they were just like really nice to talk to. So we'll let you go listen to it, and also Donna can care if you're listening. You guys are great. Yeah, agreed. Hi, <laughs> this is Hillary. Um, I'm here with Zach Peckham. Hello. And with Carrie Olivia Adams. Hi there. And Donica Stuckey. Hello. And they are here from Black Ocean Press um, and have generously offered to talk to us for a little bit. Um, you may know Black Ocean's poetry translation and prose publications. I will brag that I just read two fantastic um, new Black Ocean books, Fugue and Strike by Joe Hall. Oh, cool. And Soliloquy, Soliloquy with the Ghosts and Nile by Hussein Ahmed. Um, incredible. They're incredible books. Um, you may also know Anaïs Duplan's Black Space on the Poetics of an Afro Future, the prose of Alyssa Gabbard, um, Black Ocean's Translations, um, the literary journal Handsome, and so much of their work through the years. Maybe we'll just start at the beginning. And I was wondering if you could just tell us about the founding of Black Ocean, what inspired you to start the press, and any recollections you have about the kind of structure and day-to-day of the press in its early years, kind of what it was like to get it off the ground. Sure. I guess maybe, Carrie, I should start here, and then and then I'll hand off to you. Um, sure. I don't know how far back you want to go with in the beginning, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, I'll jump way back and then I'll fast forward. Way back, 
I started publishing zines and chapbooks when I was 15 years old. Um, and by the time I was 18, I always wanted to run my own press, but I felt like that was a pipe dream. I continued working with zines and the zine scene in Boston and ran a Boston zine fair for a number of years. Did my undergrad uh, BFA in poetry at Emerson, um, did my MFA in poetry at Vermont College, which is where Carrie and I met. And then as I, was fin- as I finished up my MFA and realized that I still had no career prospects, um, <laughs> I was sort of contemplating my next move in life. And I thought, well, if I want to teach, maybe I should go back and get a PhD. Like when I started my MFA, the MFA was very much a terminal degree. And in those two years, it like had turned into a less terminal degree from a career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was like, all right, uh, do I go back and get my PhD or do I start this publishing company that I've always dreamed of doing? And I was only like, 25 or 26 at the time. So I thought I've got plenty of time to go do a PhD. I'm going to try doing this poetry publishing press thing. So uh, that's when I reached out to Carrie um, and one of uh, our other colleagues actually from grad school, Susan McCarty, who's no longer involved with Black Ocean, but it was the three of us uh, in the beginning. Uh, that uh, started Black Ocean together um, with us each bringing sort of different experience and skill sets to the press. I'll say, I think maybe especially interesting for your listeners, I had like almost zero experience with publishing when I started Black Ocean. I had run the undergrad literary journal at Emerson um, and I had been doing you know, desktop publishing and a new graphic design, but that was it. I had never interned at a press. I had never worked for another magazine. It was all like DIY type of stuff. Fortunately, Carrie and Susan both did have industry experience. So between the three of us, we kind of pieced it together. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely something, you know, the idea of having your own press was still kind of a, novel idea at that point to start a small press there weren't that many indie presses so it always just felt like something we were talking about you know we we did a low residency degree so when we were at our residencies it was kind of fun to talk about what if we had a, a publishing company it was kind of nice to dream about that idea but it did seem like something that was harder to achieve um so i was really glad that jonica had the sort of charisma and enthusiasm thing maybe we really could try this crazy thing but I um, started working in publishing when I was 19. That was how I put myself through college. Um, I started working at the Georgia Review and then quickly started working at the University of Georgia Press and have basically been in academic publishing ever since. I still have a day job as the promotions director and communications director at the University of Chicago Press. Um, so when we started, um, you know, I was also in my early 20s, but had already had um, a few years of experience kind of seeing how a publishing house, how it works and those and kind of putting sort of the logistical pieces together of kind of what it actually takes to, to run it and to get through production and get through business. And Susan at the time had been working at Penguin. I think she was reading uh, manuscripts in, it was a werewolf erotica. Yeah. We, <laughs> really fantastic genre fiction color. kind of things. Um, but she had that sort of knowledge into the larger trade publishing world. So the three of us together kind of had different strengths and areas. And, and actually on that note, we should say that 
<clears throat> out of the gate the first year, our, our debut season was multi-genre. So we published in poetry, in fiction, and in nonfiction um, in our first season. And then we scaled back to poetry up until several years ago where we started publishing nonfiction books again. Jonica, you mentioned you mentioned how like your <laughs> your way into it was like very DIY, very learn as you go. And like Carrie, you had some, you know, maybe more formal experience, but um, you also mentioned that there weren't, you know, when you were starting Black Ocean, it was at a time where you felt like maybe there weren't a lot of other indie presses. Were there certain like models that you looked to at that time? Or like when you, when you were like formulating an idea for a press, like were there, were there certain presses that seemed like models for you or were there inspirations that even like came from outside of publishing that informed your thinking about what a press could look like? Yeah, I would say from a sort of like ethos model, not necessarily what I, what I wanted to publish content wise, but uh, speaking, you know, coming from that DIY background and that sort of out of the box background, uh, I had loved Soft Skull Press. And this was, you know, before they kind of like blew up and, and got big. We're talking um, early aughts and, and late 90s. But that was sort of my inspiration for being a multi-genre indie publisher was I was impressed with what they were doing. I was inspired by their indie hustle at that time um and they were they were a, a for-profit like grassroots indie publisher which was super rare you know um that they weren't funded by a millionaire slash billionaire who thought it would be cool to have a press they weren't they had no institutional affiliation they were not an established nonprofit, and so i thought Hey, here's a press who's doing what I feel is like within our ability to do. So that was an that was an early inspiration. I think for for me, the closest sort of indie press that was sort of a model was Verse. I mean, Verse had the magazine, and then they had the the publishing arm that eventually morphed into Wave with some of the same people. And I had, was at that time I was in Georgia. I was actually working with Brian Henry, and so I had the opportunity to volunteer with both Verse Magazine and Verse Press for a little while as well when I was in graduate school. And they they were in my mind sort of the model of kind of who was sort of filling a little bit of that sort of niche gap for interesting contemporary poetry at the time. I like remembering, so I'd forgotten about that kind of era of soft skull and also that, um, you know, they were publishing like so many musicians, books yeah. of poetry. I feel like I had um, like Mike Doty's book of poetry. From oh, yeah. yeah. It was like a treasured item that I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, maybe we'll fast forward because I know and thinking about structure, you all have kind of recently made a change in structure or expanded your structure. And in 2020, you know, you joined up with the ND Press not not a cult, which is fun to say, uh, to form Chapter House, which um, on the website is described as, quote, an independent publishing group of contemporary literary projects, and that currently houses four imprints, if I'm, if I'm right. And I believe this also shifted Black Ocean's distribution from SPD to Consortium, if that's right. We talk a lot about distribution on mm -hmm. this podcast because we're very preoccupied with the nuts and bolts and how books get to readers and how the market has shifted so much in the past 20 years and kind of tracking how small presses have adapted to that and what people have been doing. And we, you know, at the Poetry Center, of 
spend a lot of times kind of banging our heads against the limits of, of distribution, yeah. <laughs> obstacles to sales, and thinking about how small presses could kind of band together to short, uh, share resources, but also then being like, okay, look, well, what would that look like? What are the structures that would be sustainable and that would work? So I was very excited when you all announced about Chapter House and kind of intrigued as to how it, just kind of how it works. Um, and, uh, you know, like that these indies and small presses could kind of come together to create a larger sort of umbrella structure that it looks like houses kind of a range of trade lists and services. So I just was curious to hear you talk about how Chapter House works and kind of how you came to envision that structure and, and get that off the ground. Yeah, and that's actually a good, um, that's a good sort of segue from sort of in the beginning because the way that uh, Chapter House kind of came about was that, I'm trying to remember, it was either 2019 or 2020 AWP. It was like, right, pre-COVID AWP. I saw a booth at AWP for Naughty Cult. And I had seen them starting to pop up on like my Instagram feed. And I was super impressed with how like slick and contemporary their visual aesthetic was and also like a really interesting diverse catalog out of the gate you know and i was sort of like and they were based out of la which is unusual too for you know for publishing it's usually like new york or whatever and so i was like who who are these people this is really interesting and then i saw their booth at awp and their booth was also really cool and so out of the gate the they were like speaking my language because when we started Black Ocean, these were some things as, you know, talking about our indie hustle that like, like that sort of DIY marketing was always really important to me and visual aesthetics was always really important as well. And that's something that Black Ocean has been known for since the beginning is like our book design, our physical presence in booths are like ancillary sort of live programming that goes along with events. And this was a press that was like checking all those boxes. So my curiosity was really piqued. And then I, so I just sort of introduced myself at AWP to Daniel Lisi, who's one of the co-founders of Nonical. And uh, Daniel is about uh, almost 15 years younger than me. Um, and so he reminded me of young me too. <laughs> I was like, here's a guy who uh, has a lot more energy than I do now, <laughs> um, but cares about a lot of the same things, has a lot of the passions and values and everything. So we just started talking and corresponding after that. And then I was out in LA on tour and I, we were having a drink and I was telling him about that my next dream was to start a speculative fiction imprint. And he was like, oh my God, me too. And that evolved into, let's start one together. And that evolved into, well, let's merge all of our back office stuff. So, um, and a big motivator for that was that also, you mentioned distribution. Um, at that time, Not A Cult was distributed by um, Southern California, what is it? Southern SCB, Southern California Book Distribution or something. I forget the name of the group. And Black Ocean was distributed by SPD um, and had been since uh, pretty much almost the beginning. And we were both kind of like trying to pitch ourselves to consortium to pick us up and make that jump. 
we can talk a little bit more about that, why, why we wanted to do that. But we thought also not only if we merge our back office roles and responsibilities and costs and everything, but if we had a unified catalog to pitch to consortium, it would make us a more attractive prospect for them to pick up. And it did. So as we were forming Chapter House, we were also then at the same time transitioning distribution from our respective West Coast distributors to consortium. Do you want to talk about the switch to consortium? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interested in that. Yeah, um, this the this actually happened. You know, I, I think it's important to just speak frankly about it. This happened before there was a lot of controversy controversy at SPD uh, around just some of like the business practices and everything, which I, I think that they've uh, since sort of taken a lot of steps to correct and course correct and mitigate. And, and that whole organization is undergoing a sea change. And I also want to say that SPD really was like, uh, a godsend for Black Ocean and so many other indie presses. I mean, it, it it enabled us to get our books into bookstores, frankly. Like, there's no way I could have... I, I mean, for many, many years, I was handling... I was fulfilling direct website orders from my apartment, storing books under my bed until I had no more room to do that. And then I stored books in my living room and then I didn't have room to do that. And then I got a U-Haul self-storage unit and that housed all of our backlist. Um, so SPD was a game changer for that, you know, for so many reasons. But at a certain point, it felt like we wanted to make the leap from being a big fish in a small pond to being a smaller fish in a bigger pond. Um, and one of the really um, main benefits of moving to consortium was that they have like a dedicated team of sales reps who have their territories around the country, who have a lot of relationships with indie booksellers who will go and hand sell consortium's catalog and SPD doesn't really have that. They do have relationships with booksellers, absolutely, but it's not the same as like field sales reps who do this. Um, so that was really the primary motivator. And then it just so happened that after we had initiated that process a few months later, there was this big shakeup at SPD. And then a lot of presses were thinking of trying to leave for other reasons, which I think has since really been mitigated. But but it really was just about like feeling like we had a real distribution partner and not just a distribution service. And it, and that has been true. Uh, since moving to consortium, we have seen our trade sales like double or triple. Um, and there's growing pains that come with that consortium as a partner is way more demanding than SPD was as a service um, in terms of like, we really had to, and this was good. Carrie is going to be the first one to agree. I, <laughs> I want you to jump in here, but they had a lot of requirements about working with them that were aspirational for us for many years, but forced us to get ourselves in order and Maybe Carrie, you want to talk more about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a deadline person, but also as someone who works in 
in publishing during the day, I know I I think about things much more on the sort of sales and marketing cycle that the industry is based on. I mean, so consortium wraps up under Ingram, and I actually work for the, one of the biggest competitors of Ingram, the Chicago Distribution Center, which also um, distributes lots of small poetry presses. We just took on Tupelo, we've got Omnidon, Carnegie Mellon University Press, lots of places. So I have been always watching it from a uh, my professional standpoint of just knowing that, you know, we're, we're publishing all these great books, but we kind of need to hit these marks of announcing them to the market at the right time within our catalog to kind of get them into stores and get them noticed. And also just to kind of also be in the sort of publicity schedule of when reviewers want to see materials and things like that. So it's been nice to have someone other than me kind of steering us into a schedule and consortium has been, been great for that. And it's really, I think it's, helped us not just from the visibility of our books, but it, in some ways, I think it's it's pushed us to be more consistent. So we, you know, I feel like we're doing more books a year more consistently than we were before, just because we're now sort of, we're being held within these structures. And so I think it's it's better for, for our authors as well, of kind of the way we can, we're, we're scheduling things a little, with a, with a lot more certainty. Do you find those constraints constraining <laughs> i mean they're obviously like generative in these really nice ways but um i mean i don't know i'm not just trying to be like a pessimist or whatever but i, I wonder no, you know, what's the, the is there a point at which it's too yeah they're very reasonable honestly it really is just about the fact that there are you know, publishing is an old-fashioned business i mean that is part of why the consortium sales work well because they do have these field reps. It is still, whether you're selling books or publicizing books, a person-to-person business built on relationships. Um, And and so the, the... the constraints are really just sort of calendar calendar dates um, because the the industry still kind of works under a very specific kind of market requirements and they're you know they are partially specific to to the us the uk publishing market works very differently where they work on much much shorter schedules because it's a much smaller country and it's much easier to get books from one end to the other and you know, so much of thinking about how things happen in the us is that you have to get these reps out all over the country and then you have to think about still the the idea of getting books from one place to another. And even if they're digitally printed, you need to have all the apparatus to put the files in different places and and turn things on. And so even in our sort of modern world, we're still very much driven by old fashioned supply chain and, and just the scope of what we have to achieve. Yeah. And, and I do, uh, on the one hand, I appreciate that it makes it makes certain things very predictable. I mean, you know, we we have our we have our catalog planned for a few years now, just because <laughs> part of it is we we needed to. Um, and so there are elements I like of it, and yes, I I also do find it constraining sometimes. I I, I wish I could sometimes I wish I could work with more agility and spontaneity, and it you know, it makes certain things hard, but there are benefits that come with those constraints for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, um, I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's not directly related, but I feel like maybe the the structure of it is a little related to Jonica, the way you were sort of talking about like making the choice to not be a nonprofit, right. Which is like in itself, I mean, like following a certain kind of 
logic, right, is like one like dream or something is to like have this like nonprofit and to be able to like use that word, right, um, and access certain resources that only a nonprofit can. But often in order to do that, there are like there's some like pretty precise hoops one has to jump through, and you know often there are certain things that might be like compromised along that way. Yeah. And I just I just find it so interesting because. You know, it would seem that like maybe like the the nonprofit uh, drive, right? Would all seems like on paper, like it would be maybe like the less like capitalistic or um, enterprising thing to do. Um, but actually, like you're saying, it's like well, actually, like maybe like taking like money from billionaires to make drugs would <laughs> <laughs> yeah. be like quote unquote, you know, like a real entrepreneur about it and just figure out ways to fund it yourself. Yeah, and I think that there are a couple of important distinctions to make here. And if I speak slowly, it's because it's uh, delicate waters, right? No, this is number two. We can edit. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mind. I've been we'll everyone's name. since the beginning. So yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, I think, for, so first and foremost, I think it's important to make the distinction between being a nonprofit organization and being a mission-driven organization. And that you can be a mission-driven organization without being a nonprofit organization. And I very much think of Black Ocean as a mission-driven organization. We have a mission statement up on our website. Um, and that is a guiding star. And, and when I say a mission-driven organization, it means that your mission is other than accruing capital for owners or shareholders or stakeholders. Book sales is a natural outcome of finding readers for books, right? And so our mission is to promote the work we believe in. And if we are succeeding in our mission, it means people are buying and reading those books. So I think it's important to make that distinction out of the gate. Um, the irony around nonprofits and sort of like the name there, I mean, some of it comes to what you're talking about, Zach, for sure. I think that there are other much more nuanced, uh, I would say either ironies or paradoxes where within the nonprofit structure, there are other priorities than book sales, um, which allows them certain luxuries within a capitalist society that a for-profit press doesn't have. And I'll just give you one example is that, uh, you know, if you think of the, the big poetry nonprofits like Grey Wolf, Milkweed, whatever, usually half their operating budget, sometimes even less than that, comes from sales and the other half or half plus comes from various donations, grants, all that type of stuff. Um, <clears throat> but what that allows them to do is, as a nonprofit, you can spend an amount of money on publicity. You could hire a very high-end uh, publicist, freelance book publicist for a poetry book that in no way makes any sense for a for-profit poetry publisher to to hire, you know, you could hire someone who charges $30,000 to work on a book. Are you going to sell 
30,000 units of that book? Like, no, right? <laughs> like, um, so, uh, so nonprofits can do that. And, 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 you know, part of it is that they are furthering their mission because what they're doing is they're not seeing that return on book sales, but they are signal boosting those poets, right? And in turn, that book gets a tremendous amount of tension. Maybe it sells one or 2,000 copies after they've spent $40,000 on publicity for it. But then it wins a couple of awards, and that then raises the awareness and profile of the nonprofit, which in turn allows them to apply for more grant money and raise more funds. So it gives them certain freedoms that for-profits don't have. Um, and it's just a different it's just a different model and a different way of channeling your energy. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I just I, I just feel fascinated by this <laughs> this question and um, you know the just the idea that like there's actually like there there are significant like pluses and minuses yeah. on either yeah. side of that equation. And I guess I I come at it from like like I'm like I'm working with like I an organization that like just very recently went all in on like nonprofit, you know, status after having like a lot of conversations where I felt like I was being a real stick in the mud, but I was kind of like, are you guys sure? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I, I mean, just to say like, it, I, I, this comes from me just like trying to learn and also just, yeah, like, you know, understanding the, like you're saying, like the more nuanced sort of considerations that go into it. Um, and I like your, I like your distinction of the mission driven organization versus the nonprofit. Cause I think I hadn't really thought about that before, but I think you're totally right that they often get everything gets rolled up <laughs> into one and they're not, they're really not the same. Yeah. I love, I love all the detail of that discussion. Um, thank you. <laughs> it's really, I was thinking too, the press I worked at in my twenties, um, was a for-profit and we published a lot of literature and translation and most of our quote unquote competitors were nonprofits, which meant they could pay much higher advance, you know, so right. for, the, for the translations, things like that. And they could get grants. Um, we could get grants from foreign governments, <laughs> but not, from, not <laughs> that's in the US. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that sounded like sketchy. Like does too sometimes, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was sort of, you know, and I sometimes would try to have a real exchange with people about it, just be like, you know, actually our advances are proportionate to the sales of the book. And so we're not, you know, that, that is what we're trying to answer to that kind of pure market situation. Um, but this kind of leads in, I wanted to ask you about, you know, when I think of Black Ocean, like, I think you guys have had some real hits. <laughs> So I wanted to see if you would share your secrets, I guess. Um, you know, when I think when I was in grad school, it was, a, you know, the time that Zachary Schomburg's work was like so influential and widespread. And I was like finding my way back into poetry. And that was such a big part of the conversations that happening then. Um, and I, I'm curious to hear, and, and you, you know, touched on this in your discussion of, of kind of mission and thinking about being a mission driven organization or press, like, you know, as publishers, we both like love when that happens. Um, sometimes it's stressful. It's like hard to keep up with the volume because we're small. Um, and we're like, oh no, this success is going to destroy us. Um, and you know, we're, I get interested whenever, you know, books kind of 
stand out or blow up in a way to be like, okay, I want that to happen again, but also I want to publish the book. So the quieter sales figures that I also know are great, I want them to kind of nourish each other, even though it rarely works that way exactly, or, you know, um, you can't, you can't make the magic uh, rub off. Um, anyway, so I was just was curious to hear you two talk about, I don't know, anything on your mind to do with this, you know, the great successes at Black Ocean of best-selling of how you think about it over the life of the press um and any secrets you'd like to share <laughs> well Jonica, do you want to tell the the zach origin story um i i could um I'll, i guess i'll tell that uh, maybe, maybe it's a good see it's a good lesson maybe that and then a secret um <clears throat> and then i carry i'd be curious to hear your thoughts in general too but um, so Hillary, since you mentioned Zachary Schomburg, um, the way that came about, we, it was our first year as Black Ocean. We were at AWP 2006, I think it was, in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And um, didn't really know anyone there. Um, and we had our first few books out on the table, which we sold really i mean like i was i and and our and and our author and carrie were like hand selling like crazy and we sold 500 books at our first awp um and we met a lot of people there and and i was at a i was at one of the um offsite readings and in those days there were like five offsite readings not like 200 offsite readings um but i was at this offsite reading and zach was reading and uh I was just like, I was totally transfixed and I was blown away and I loved like every poem he was reading. And at the end of his set, he just says like, those are from an unpublished manuscript. If anyone wants to publish it, let me know. <laughs> he was kind of saying it like sort of self-effacing jokingly or whatever. And I hadn't, I didn't know him. I hadn't been introduced to him, but I just went up to him afterwards and I was like, Hey, I have this press black ocean. Uh, I would love to see your manuscript. Please send it to me. Um, and he did, and I read it, and it was really good. And it had been a finalist a number of times. It had been a finalist at well, like a few different prestigious prizes and other, you know, a few of the other presses that are analogous to Black Ocean. At that time, there weren't that many, but like Fence existed, and it had been a finalist at Fence. And I could see why it had been a finalist and why it didn't win. And so I just said, like, we would love this. Would you be willing? to work with me on editing so like a few a few but a few major tweaks to it and he was like yeah i would love to and and just as a sidebar i think that's actually pretty rare i didn't know that at the time but i think it's pretty rare for poetry presses to say like we want to edit your manuscript with you um so we did that and then in 2007 our second year of operating or, or publishing we put out just one book which is all we had money for um and we put out zach schomberg's the man suit and it was chosen by the new york public library as one of the top 25 books of 2007. there were three poetry books on that list it was robert haas margaret atwood and zachary schomberg <laughs> Um, other books on that list were like uh, Brief and Wondrous Life of, June, of Oscar Wow, um, Tree of Smoke. Like all the other books on the list were hardbacks, foil stamped, National Book Award, <laughs> Pulitzer Prize. I'm now, was this 2007? So I'm like 
28 years old, something like that, 29 years old. And I'm invited to like a gala reception at the New York Public Library. And it's it's like me and then the editors and publishers of FSG, Knopf, Penguin, all that stuff. It was really wild. Um, but that like definitely put Black Ocean on people's radar. And also that book sold well enough that we could keep publishing more books, which we did. Um, that has been continued to be a perennial seller for us and, and over the years has gone through. It's one of the few books talking about those, like the traps of successes, Hillary, like a lot of times when you have a breakout hit, you run out of the first printing, you run out of the second printing, and then you're stuck with the third printing. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't keep up, you can't keep up, you can't. And then you have 5,000 copies in inventory that sit there for 20 years. Um, and with Zach's book, it hasn't been, it has been like a slow, steady seller through like four or five printings now or something like that. So, um, but the lesson I think is what Carrie and I have always like held true, which is, and this is part of being the for-profit uh, and like the for-profit where we are both volunteering our time is that we publish the things that really resonate with us. Like we don't publish the things that judges choose. We don't publish the things that we think the market wants, which we're guessing at. We just publish what we're like, oh, I want to see this book out in the world. And uh, usually when that happens, other people want to read it too. <laughs> and I, I honestly, I think that's like our secret sauce, you know? <laughs> I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we only publish things that we really like. I mean, that. I mean, it, that's a great story of of seeing Zach reading and like. But those those moments where you encounter someone like that in person are, I think, are are, are the rarity. Yeah. But what we've done, what where I come in is trying to dig through our our submissions and you know Zach's book really put us on the map and then very quickly we were getting hundreds of submissions at a time and you know but through that we've found you know I think I think about like Joe Hall now someone who's been with us for you know four books and you know and Pick a Feta's My Wife was something that came out you know had never heard of Joe Hall, knew nothing about his work, and was just a complete sort of discovery through the open submission process. You know, and that was back in the time when people would still mail me manuscripts to my condo, and they would just kind of be stacked up all over the place, and I would read them on the porch. And um, but that that to me is always the real fun part is that moment of discovery. And you know, I you know I feel like you know a Black Ocean book. When you when you see it, there is a sort of unifying um, aesthetic voice um, that kind of is in this weird Venn diagram between sort of Jonica's tastes and my tastes, and there's always this sort of this this place where we can find where they overlap, and you know, but they are there are things that we truly like. You know, this is a volunteer led press, and and so we, in order to invest that sort of time, you have to truly believe in the book that you're publishing and get very excited about it. And one of the things we have always done is also spend close time sort of editing the books that come in and kind of, and that was something we also did really early on. I think about like Fang Sun Chen's like 
um, butcher's tree and things like that that came in you're like you you see the potential of what this book can be and if you can find an author who's willing to kind of have a collaboration back and forth with you um, to make it the best possible book it can be that was always like a process that I um, truly truly enjoyed and was happy to to dig into um, and so for for us it's about kind of finding that 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 poetry book that kind of ch- that changes how you see things kind of challenges you in a way to do you know, your, your perspective it feels new it feels interesting but then it also kind of sits in this wonderful place between how both Jonica and I kind of think about think about the world and think about poetry you know and we've since brought on Liliana von Bertram as well to be another sort of voice in the editing pool which has been really great yeah. and you know Liliana von's taste kind of sits over ours as well. It all kind of makes this really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and through that, like I am hosting um, Sean Webster tonight um, for reading at my house from Whale Song. And like, I feel like this is a a really good example of the kind of books that have come out of that sort of collaboration of editorial vision and sort of, um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, It's a really exciting process, but it's also incredibly overwhelming like we just i we just had our most recent open reading um and i think there are 400 450 submissions and you know it's great it's great to see that support and interest in black ocean and you know I, hopefully most all of those people are our readers as well um but it you know to try to if we can't publish anywhere near as many books as we'd like. So try to turn it to narrow it down and find the things we, that truly can kind of break through are um, that's important. And I think one of the challenges that Carrie mentioned, not publishing all, all the books that we want to publish is that the longer we're around, the more authors we have. And wow. like, a, I think this is also unusual for a lot of poetry publishers, but we, because we're not, um, judge like contest judge driven or anything like that we really like to cultivate multi-book relationships with our authors um so the more authors we have the more they end up filling out our forthcoming titles too um uh so luckily we've also gradually been able to grow the number of books we put out every year but it definitely doesn't keep pace with both interest in black ocean and returning authors as well so yeah, I, I really care about our commitment to our existing authors. So it's always a sort of balance. And I think um, it is, it's a, it's a definitely a rare thing. I wish more, I wish more presses would do it as someone who is a mid-career poet and kind of has to keep bouncing around to different publishers. Like, I love the idea that if you, you know, if you hear Joe Hall has a new book, you know, it came out with Black Ocean likely, right. like, you know, to come to us for for that. And you think of that as sort of a home for this person and that I like kind of cultivating that idea. Yeah. That was literally my next question. <laughs> I think that's such a distinctive thing about Black Ocean is your, um, like your, that you have a stable of writers that you're committed to and that you support over the course of their careers. Um, I feel like I should, like, full disclosure, my husband is one of them. Um, In case anyone wants to. (laughs) Um, It's true. Uh, You know, and I was thinking that it it is pretty unusual in the small press world. And maybe, you know, some of these 
phenomenon that we're talking about, I feel like have to do with the rise of the contest model in a way, right? If you, when presses become more dependent on the contest model for their funding, then they're not going to be able to keep publishing their previous authors because they need to run the, the contest to do, you know, and, and, um, you know, that means like Carrie, as, as you said, like, you know, of like wonderful previous authors who were, you're like, they have a third or fourth manuscript and we don't have room to take it, but we'd love to, you know, like, or, you know, at, as a small press writer myself, sometimes I'm like, okay, I've published four books. I don't have anywhere to send the next. Book. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, I'm, I'm in a similar boat myself. I, I mean, I have, I have two books out with uh, third man books, Jack White's publishing company, but their model, both as a record label and as a, as a book publisher is usually one and done. So the fact that they did two with me was an anomaly um and you know uh i'm when i have my third one ready i'm probably gonna have to go elsewhere mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and um yeah it's unfortunate because i think the nice thing is there are also lessons learned from building a relationship you know it's like we learn authors strengths and weaknesses and what they do like to do and don't like to do and how they like to engage with their readers and uh so and and i'm sure they learned that about us too where we're where we're fun to work with and where we're annoying to work with but um uh yeah it's really nice to to cultivate those relationships over time and i think it's freeing you know it lets there be like more like developmental work in a way which is that like one of your authors can send you a project that maybe like isn't ready to like do the whole circuit and go to hunt you know but like you can help like you can help them make it into the finished book. And I think that's so beautiful, you know, for writers when we have a book where something really like is something precious is happening in it, but we haven't quite figured, you know, (laughs) there's like a little more to do (laughs) to have like a relationship with someone who knows your work and knows your process and will be willing to say yes to the book and then do the work with you like that. You know, we all wonder about, you know, sort of the cost of having everything, um, having so much, having so many contests and having everything have to rise up through these stacks and having the first 20 pages be so important, (laughs) you know, like, whereas in, in that case, you can have those, um, like, like deeper and more collaborative relationships, but yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, to, to build on our sort of like, mechanical obsessions that we have with <laughs> how, how presses work. Um, and maybe this is sort of in keeping with like our, our thread about, um, you know, the for-profit model. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about for-profit, a for-profit press that you both volunteer your time at, um, which I mean, I guess if, you know, we're trying to unpack mission driven, that seems pretty mission driven to me, but um I'm just curious, right? So, uh, you know, like everyone we talk to, right, has like a certain formula, right, for how they're able to make devoting the amount of time and effort and energy that they do to an enterprise like small press publishing um, sustainable, uh, you know, in in a sense, right? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just not sustainable. But um, I'm just curious to see, like, just to hear from each of you, right? How, I mean, we know, Carrie, you, we've heard a bit about your publicity work. Um, but uh, yeah, just to hear from each of you, how, like, 
how do you each make that work? Like, how does it kind of, yeah. Like what are there strategies that you've developed over time? How do, how do we, how do we continue? I, I wish I, I wish I understood how it happened. We've been doing this. I mean, what, how old is Backwash now? Almost 18, 19 years. Yeah. 18, 18 years, uh, since we started and 16 yeah. years since our first book came out. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been working full time that that whole time, and I've been writing my own books somewhere here and there. I mean, it's a, it's a nights and weekends kind of thing for me. I feel like Jonica and I, as of late, have been kind of working opposite opposite schedules, yeah. especially now that you've become a father and things like that. Yeah. But um, it's I, I'm a I've gotten really efficient. I think is 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 more of of how it is is. Um, you, th- you spend a lot of time thinking about things over here, but then you're really like when you actually dig in, you're, you're ready to go and you answer those emails and like just kind of t- time blocking and just figuring out how to how to build those little bit of, of boundaries between it, between it all. But, um, you know, it, it it goes back to because I love it, I can I somehow am able to to make the, the time work. But I honestly, if I actually looked back at, at my schedule, I'd have no idea. I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you the secret of of how it actually happens. I'm just really glad that we are somehow continue. The books still continue to appear. So whatever we're doing is is working. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, I'll share. I'll share an anecdote that uh, there's a, a woman, Manetta, who worked with us for a long time as sort of like a managing editor, production assistant type of person, and she would always table at AWP with us. And one of her favorite stories was some AWP, you know, it was like 9 a.m. The book fair had just opened. This is this is a long time ago, at least a decade ago, uh, probably more like 15 years ago. I'm like totally hungover at the table and, you know, some very like bright eyed and bushy tailed, probably grad student or whatever comes up and is like, I want to start my own press. Like, what should I do to start my own press? And, um, (laughs) like, I guess this is what Minetta relayed to me, but I think I basically like looked at that person and I was like, you have to be ready to like burn down everything else in your life. If you want to make it work. (laughs) Um, and, and I, and like, it, it's true. I mean, I, I started this in, you know, with Carrie in my 20s, and I would say for the first, like, five to 10 years, uh, it the work that I put in on Black Ocean was often at the detriment to one or other, one or more other things in my life, whether it was, like, my physical health, my mental health, my personal relationships, my um, financial stability, at one point or another, it was all, you know, all of those things. Um, and, you know, that's, I think that is true for any entrepreneur in any industry. You know, hopefully that period is like six months to a year and not like five to 10 years. Um, but if you are trying to start something from scratch, especially if you are trying to do it without any major investment or seed money or anything, you're working nights and weekends and 
all sorts of things while you're also doing all this other stuff to support yourself. And it means that you're not doing all the other things in those nights and weekends that you normally would do, like go to the gym or sleep or hang out with your partner or whatever those things are. Um, and uh, I think both Black Oceans at a place where we don't have to do that anymore. Carrie and I have both become more efficient. And frankly, I'm a father and I'm 45 and I'm not willing to do that to myself or my life or my family anymore. So sometimes it just means like I accept that something's not going to get done. And unfortunately, it means other people have to accept that too, so I can get it done. Um, but uh, yeah, how you make it work. I mean, I've had, Carrie's worked in the in the publishing industry the entire time. I have, uh, since, since we started Black Ocean, I have worked as an undertaker. I've been a bouncer. Uh, I sold weed before weed was legal in Massachusetts. Uh, I worked as a, as a project manor, manager for a fiduciary. Um, and for the past decade, I've worked uh, as a product manager for educational technology. So um, it's, it's a wide range of things. Um, and I'm not the, you know, like that's pretty varied, but I know other editors and publishers who also have a, a pretty diverse background who have, you know, tried to make this work as well. I'm, you know, I'm just curious to talk to you both as, as poets who've been writing and publishing and performing through that 18 years um, and how that work relates to the work at Black Ocean or how you find, and you just spoke to this a little bit and, you know, Carrie, because I am also someone who worked in publishing, I was thinking about the different brains or heads. <laughs> like, yeah. Like that the publishing work is like, you know, about these like rhetorically acrobatic emails and like spreadsheets, and this kind of like precision and copy editing and this very fussy brain that you need to, <laughs> to do those things in contrast to the sort of, you know, like more wildness of writing or, or a space of creativity. Um, and, you know, John, if I was thinking of your work, you know, which is informed by, you know, mysticism and the ecstatic, which is a a different space than the email space. You know? um, like, and, you know, and I just might be want to just for the, for podcast listeners, share this kind of beautiful line in the, in the Black Ocean mission statement, um, you know, which is quote, we believe in the fishers art can create in consciousness when even if just for a moment, we experience a more vital way of operating in the world. And through that moment, then seek out more extreme and enlightened modes of existence. Uh, and to me, that really spoke to the openings of kind of writing in the day or in, in um, as a practice. So, yeah, I was just wanting, wondering, <laughs> wanting to hear you talk about your own writing and, and performance and how that fit in and, and how it, the work at Black Ocean talked to your writing and vice versa. Well, I mean, there are a few different ways I think about answering that question. You know, one, directly the work at Black Ocean changed the way I thought about my own writing as far as spending so much time editing other people's work has made me a very ruthless editor of my own work. Um, I have absolutely no emotional attachment to anything that I write once it's on the page. I <laughs> am it's like, it's like someone else wrote it. And I, you know, and even if it's referencing a memory I had, it just, it, I am now completely disassociated. And I think that that has made me 
a, a much stronger writer and a much stronger reviser, of course, um, in the course of doing this. Um, and so I kind of learning that sort of detachment and also thinking like an editor in the end of thinking about really it, one of my goals always when I'm approaching anything with, with Black Ocean is to make sure that the reader knows how to read the book throughout the book, that the book kind of stays, like the book can have any kind of crazy logic it wants to have, as long as it takes the reader along for that ride in a way that is comfortable enough that the reader kind of learns their their way through that process. And that's kind of a a mode that I brought into thinking about, about my own work as a result of what I've been doing with Black Ocean. Um, as far as kind of just going back and forth between the different brains, that's become an, a much, much bigger challenge the older I've gotten and the more time I've spent in publishing. At this point, I manage a 15-person team. So and I'm not, when I'm at, you know, in my day job brain, I'm not just thinking about publishing, but I'm thinking about management and sort of, the, the, which is a com- a whole other piece of just relationships and and that can be really, really draining by the time you get out of it. And I've just come off of two years of being woefully understaffed and covering lots of jobs. And it has meant that I haven't been as creative or as focused on my writing as I would like. Um, and so it it's it's gotten harder to balance it all. In the beginning, when I was first working at the University of Chicago Press, I was working in the journals division. And at that point, we published all of these astrophysical journals. And I would actually read the journals, not that I understood them, but I would be pulling out notes and ideas. Like my first book kind of like has little pieces that I stole from things that while I was thinking about them on the job. And I still do that now. I'll be sitting in editorial committee and somebody will say something that's I find really interesting. And then I'll, I'll start to kind of make some notes. That's the only way I can make it work for me is that if everything I'm exposed to is a potential potential lead. And I'm a, I'm a just, I'm a note taker. And so I don't have a, like, I can't have a day where I sit down and like say, all right, I'm going to work every, every weekday morning from, you know, five to seven in the morning before the day. Like that's, that's not me. I have to just kind of pull it together from all these different threads of things that I'm exposed to. And then when I have the time, figure out how to stitch it together. Um, and so that is the nice thing about working in publishing is that I'm constantly surrounded by, you know, scholarly conversation and new ideas. And um, I find that invigorating. And as long as you can kind of be curious about it and kind of pull out those pieces, and maybe when you have the energy to think about it more creatively, you can put it all together. Yeah. I think um, my experience has been pretty similar to some of what Carrie described up until 2020, uh, or I would say 2017 through 2020, I was also in my other job managing about the same size of a team that Carrie was for McGraw-Hill education. Um, But kind of to your question, Hillary, about um, almost like code switching between the, the way you operate in the sort of like professional sphere and the way you operate in the creative sphere, the, you know, the busier that I, became or the more practical demands that were made upon me between my professional life, Black Ocean's growth, becoming a father, all those things. Um, Also uh, put a finer point on like 
my hunger for awe and those um, that that what I see both as my work with Black Ocean and my work as a poet is my vocation, my, you know, like the actual calling, I am called to do this. Um, and um, the less time I have to be a creative, the hungrier I become to be a creative, even when I don't have the energy, right? Like even when it's like, uh, all I have the energy for, or think that I have the energy for is like binge watching or doom scrolling or whatever. It's important to take a step back from that and realize that like, that's not regenerative. That's not, let alone generative, that's just not restorative. Um, and I do have a daily meditation practice. I think there's a great uh, um, parable. It's from some, some Buddhist parable where I'm just, I don't know who the teacher was, but he said like, everyone should meditate for 15 minutes a day. And if you don't have time to meditate for 15 minutes, then you should meditate for two hours. Um, and, I, and I do, I meditate for 15 minutes a day because if I don't have time to meditate for 15 minutes, then it's time to take a step back, <laughs> you know? Um, and similar to what Carrie described, I end up piecing my creative time together, sort of stitching it together. Um, every once in a while, I'll be able to carve out a couple of weeks where I am able to dedicate like an hour every morning or something like that. But more often than not, I'll kind of be like, okay, every six months, I'm going to go on a four-day writing retreat. And all of this sort of like accumulated hunger and information and note-taking and everything that's built up for me over time then just like comes out in a flood on uh, in this four or five day period. And, you know, I'm cranking out like five poems a day or something like that. And I'm just like wringing the rag dry. And then I go back to my mundane life and I do that again for another six months. And kind of... It's so nice to hear that that works. <laughs> <laughs> it works for me. I don't know if it yeah. works for everybody, but yeah. just for, think, for someone. <laughs> I think that's that's the most important thing I learned during the low residency. I don't know about you, Jonica, was that I've learned how I how I write while I have a job, yes. and like how to kind of fit the two together. And I think that's the most important thing as a writer is figure out like how how do you work? Like you know, what what actually is your method because there are everybody has their their own thing and actually taking the time to figure out kind of actually how to balance those two pieces and doing that early on was really was really valuable for me and that's the, that's what the low residency kind of forced forced you to do absolutely and i think that there is a way and this is why i have that med daily meditation practice is there is a way to stay receptive to those like existential awe-inspiring experiences throughout your day, even if you don't have the time or energy to record them in a skillful or craftful way, right? That, and But it's staying receptive to that experience and staying curious and like doing the work of an artist, uh, which is to inquire into the nature of human existence and then when you have the time, when you have the energy, apply your craft and document it. That's beautiful. I, I really, I like the mind as a rag, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's getting all that dust and then 
figure yeah. out. That's great. Um, we have to we have to figure out how to add hand gestures. To <laughs> right. Yeah, hand gesture. Yeah. More than usual, you yeah. guys made some great hand bed diagrams earlier. <laughs> we'll work on that. I know that um, time is upon us. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us and for this really illuminating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It was very fun. Thank you.